Carol Marine. What is it like to report in the middle of a war? Right now, many journalists are learning the answer to that question firsthand with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But for young reporters who've not had that experience, they ask, what's life like as a correspondent? And what are the challenges? What are the considerations? Jackie Spinner and Kevin Tibbles are two former war correspondents. They join us this episode to share their experiences and their advice on reporting on war. Today, Jackie teaches journalism at Columbia College in Chicago, and after a break, she'll be joining us to lend her insight and her experience. now is Jackie Spinner. Just begin by telling us how you came to be assigned to the Iraq War. Well, there was a war and they needed reporters. You were working for whom? I was working for the Washington Post and I was actually on the the business uh, staff at the time. And I had been assigned to cover all of the billions of dollars of reconstruction contracts, because as uh, when the U.S. invaded uh, Iraq, they almost immediately started um, rebuilding. And so I was tasked to follow the contracts and follow the dollars. And so um, I I had my foot in the story at that point. uh, But what really got me to Iraq and also to Afghanistan was uh, the Abu Ghraib prison scandal. I was uh, I was covering that uh, f- for the paper, and uh, and initially went to Iraq for my longer term assignment to cover the military court hearings. It was important work. I think I I, I did good work, um, but I paid a price for it. You know, I um, emotionally and mentally um, and physically in some ways. So I, I don't wake up in the morning and wish that I were in Ukraine. Can you help us understand what that price is exactly? Well, you know, there are many uh, journalists who go to war who don't return. Um, You know, we've seen this in in Ukraine, you know, with some very high profile, um, um, you know, deaths of of journalists. There will be more. I I, I have no doubt. Um, War is deadly and uh, reporters no longer have have immunity because they're journalists. I mean, we saw that starting to develop in the mid 2000s where, you know, having the words press on your flak jacket or your vehicle, particularly in the Middle East, meant nothing. You know, we've lost that immunity, um, you know, to cover war. It's, it's, um, you know, so it's dangerous work physically and it's also, it, it, it's dangerous work mentally. It's hard to see the devastation of, of war and to see people die and to make sense of it. Um, I remember in particular a massive suicide bombing that I covered in Baghdad and, uh, you know, the aftermath of that and, you know, wearing, you know, pieces of human tissue home on my shoes, back to the bureau on my shoes. 
and, and not being able to eat certain foods, you know, for months and months after that, um, because it was just, it was so horrific. Um, you don't lose those images. Um, even after decades, you don't, you don't lose, you know, what it looks like to see that kind of devastation or to smell it. Any friends or family <clears throat> saying to you, don't go? I don't think my, my mother wanted me to go. She didn't, she knew she couldn't tell me not to go. Um, you know, it was, it was not as dangerous in 2004. I went first in early 2004. I mean, it was a war, war is always dangerous, but it really became increasingly uh, more risky as the insurgency picked up, as the civil war uh, started uh, between the Shuni, Sunni and the Shia. So uh, I think they were more concerned as time went on. I initially was only supposed to go for about seven weeks and I stayed for about two years. And uh, because the Washington Post and I both figured out, I was unexpectedly kind of good at covering war, uh, which was a surprise to me and um, hopefully not as much to them. But so over over time, yes, there was a lot of my family was very concerned, particularly as the the kidnappings picked up and the suicide bombings, it became a more dangerous place. I mean, in that part of the world, in Iraq, they were beheading reporters. Danny yes. Pearl. Yes. Well, and uh, Nicholas Berg was the first American who was beheaded uh, by Al Qaeda. And this was in May of 2004. And I arrived maybe a week after that. And, and they, that was just the beginning. I mean, one of my jobs when I was in the Washington Post Baghdad Bureau was to watch all of the beheading videos. Uh, we were looking for, well, first we had a report on them. Um, and uh, we were looking for details about who might've been committing them. Um, you know, how how people were dying. Um, and I watched so many of those uh, videos that I knew at some point that it was about, took about seven seconds to die once they, they started to behead you, which is, um, you know, is not information that you necessarily want occupying any part of your, your, your brain space. Oh. Well, there can be a kind of PTSD to witnessing that again and again and again. Absolutely. I mean, I was very open about my struggles with PTSD after I finally uh, came home and, you know, get coming on, out on the other side of that. Were you ever at the front? I covered the Battle of Fallujah uh, in 2004. Um, that was intense urban hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, I, the front, you know, it, it was, um, was everywhere in Iraq, right? Every day, there were dangers everywhere. Um, and I, I think it really was the first, the first war where that was the case because of the kind of warfare that was being used, the suicide bombs, the IEDs, um, it could find you anywhere, um, even in the back of, back of the line with the fuel supply uh, troops. You know, it was, it was a dangerous place to be. Driving down the road was dangerous. Walking out the door was dangerous. And so, but uh, Fallujah was a very intense battle. Um, it was very dangerous. I was surprised uh, most mornings when I woke up that I was still alive. I used to sleep with my helmet over my uh, face so that my mother could identify my body. 
um, you know, it was just, it was, it was horrific, uh, combat. Um, it, and, and, you know, it wasn't the only, it was probably the most intense combat that I reported on, but I, I embedded, um, quite a bit, um, over the years that I was in Iraq, which was started in 2004. And I, I left the final time and the end of 2011, um, right before my first son was born and I became a mother. So I, I did, I was in and out of Iraq for a lot over that period of time. To say that you slept with a helmet on your face so your mother could identify your body is a pretty profound concept. You know, war is is horrific and it's dangerous, but I can also say <clears throat> in in a, a moment of reflection that there's there's beauty, there's absolute beauty. Um, you know, because you look for the small things. One of the things I struggled with when I came home was trying to remember what it was like to live like like every day could be my last. And um, with the urgency and the sense of purpose, many war correspondents uh, come home and and struggle to find that rele relevance covering city council and zoning hearings and you know the our neighborhood stories, which are just as important. I tell my students that all the time, um, but but there is a period of transition because you're going from, you know, such significant uh, life altering stories uh, to the stories to the more mon mundane coverage that is necessary uh, domestically. Earlier this year, Kevin Tibbles announced his retirement from NBC News. Kevin served as both a foreign and domestic correspondent in London and then in Chicago. He's covered events from Princess Diana's funeral to Hurricane Katrina. He's covered war and is no stranger to the dangers inherent in this type of assignment. Start with a little bit of background, Kevin. Um, when and where were you assigned to cover war? Well, I've been uh, to several conflict areas over the years. Um, beginning, actually, when I was still with the CBC in Canada, where I covered the first Gulf War. Um, I was based in Qatar uh, during that time because that was where uh, the joint uh, Canadian and American uh, forces bases were at that time. Um, at that time, I actually ended up uh, breaking the the story of uh, Canadian CF-18 jets um, attacking inside Iraq, um, which was the first time that Canadian forces had fired shots in anger since the Korean War, and that was sort of how I um, sort of got wet my wet my teeth and my appetite, uh, what have you, for that sort of thing. Um, since there, uh, you know, the um, fall of the Berlin Wall, I guess you wouldn't really call a war zone, although I guess it was the beginning of the end for the for the Cold War, and then of course. Um, when, uh, after joining NBC, uh, you know, Afghanistan, Rwanda, um, a lot of time in Sarajevo, Bosnia, uh, Tuzla, Bosnia, um, Kosovo, Belgrade, um, Uganda, you name it. It, it. it became a lifestyle for me, and it became the fulfillment of, of, a, of a dream because that was, those were the front pages of all the newspapers I read growing up as a kid, and uh, and I was fascinated by that sort of thing. 
your first combat assignment. Did you have training for that? Yes, yes. We we often had, I guess you could you could describe it as battlefield training, which um, you know, for the most part would be emergency first aid type issues. Uh we certainly all learned how to put on uh put on gas masks and um I got very used to wearing my flak jacket and helmet. Um although I was known to put my helmet on backwards at times, which uh much to the consternation of the people back in the control room. But <laughs> but yes, uh, those sorts of things we were trained in. And um and I I felt confident with the training that we had and and I never really um you know the the adrenaline rush as you probably know Carol is a very powerful thing and and when you get into situations like that that is that really is a drive that keeps you going and and perhaps you you don't become careless of course because you have your wits about you but but uh the anxiety and perhaps the fear of it all um you put aside for a little while till it's over any PTSD I think so um I think so, especially after uh, certain yeah, certain places, uh, Baghdad uh, in particular, uh, the Kosovo situation. Um, I, I mean, I don't think that I suffered PTSD because of anything that had to do with myself. Um, I mean, I have been shot at and blown up and stuff, but but it, 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 what really affected me was was uh, seeing what was happening to other people, and that's how, you know, with the situation in Ukraine right now, for example, I I feel tremendously for for colleagues colleagues over there because um, the sorts of things that you see stay with you, and uh, you know, and I still do, uh, you know, I still get a shock. Uh, on the 4th of July and things like that. I mean, those things. I mean, when you so hear the boom, when you hear the explosions, it, there's a trigger there? I believe there is. There is, there is for me. Um, you know, not so much like the backfiring of a car, but, uh, but there is a certain sound. I mean, it, you, it's, there's a tonality to it that doesn't sound like anything else, but fireworks are one of the ones that, that does sound very familiar. Um, you know, gunshots, things like that. Um, but again, it was, it was, uh, me seeing who perhaps didn't survive. Um, I can remember, I can remember stumbling across uh, a woman, uh, along the border between Rwanda and, uh, and Congo now, I guess, um, who had been macheted and, uh, she was still alive and we actually, uh, managed to save her. Uh, got it. We got an Irish aid organization by the name of Concern involved, and they actually saved her. We just sort of found her. But those sorts of things, they stayed with me. Perhaps I was too sensitive a person. I don't know. But uh, but yeah, they do stay with you, even now, fifteen years later. Jackie Spinner, <clears throat> who teaches at Columbia and who covered war for the Washington Post said that there were times she would come back after an IED had exploded in Afghanistan and you'd find 
pieces of people on your boots. Yeah. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Well, I can remember, um, you know, and I'm not, I, I don't say these things, Carol, uh, to say, to talk about, you know, Mr. War Guy or whatever, but, you know, I can, uh, I can remember being in Baghdad one time when the, when the guy in a car drove, you know, into the compound of a hotel and, and near the thieves market and blew himself up. And I can, I can remember like it was like yesterday and having a boy, maybe the age of 10 or 11, come up to me and say, you know, hey, mister, do you want to see an eyeball? And, you know, sure enough, and it, it was like, oh, my God. Like, But again, you know, I wasn't thinking like, I am, and here's this, this just blowing themselves up, and here's part of their head. But I was just thinking, just imagine if, you know, if I was 11 or my son was 11 or you know, just imagine the trauma that those people must have been going through. And yes, you carry that with you. I agree wholeheartedly with what she said to look down and see that on your your boots. I mean, I know a lot of people that sought out relief from all of that in various ways, you know, alcohol being the number one. And um, it's really not easy. So. Is that what was the hardest part, or was there anything that was even harder than that, being a war correspondent? Um, well, making the deadline is always. Yeah. <laughs> I often, I, I often joke. So hopefully the powers that be. I often joke that I was more afraid of NBC than I was of the Iraqis, <laughs> primarily because. Well, because it was true. I mean, what 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 went on the air at six thirty either made made or you know would make or break uh, whether or not you're going to be on tomorrow at six thirty. Um, yeah, like and, never mind you're at war, and you know, but make sure that nightly in New York gets the script early. Well, yes, exactly, and uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of competition involved with with the other networks, of course. As you watch the war in Ukraine unfold, is there a part of you that says, God, I wish I was there now? Yeah. Um, I was in the Black Sea about two years ago. And I was actually in Ukraine proper in the Odessa region uh, at military exercises with Ukrainian troops. Uh, who were being or who were training alongside American troops outside of Odessa in, you know, in the in the plains, uh, the steppes or what have you. Um, and this was as recent as about two years ago. And it was very obvious to us then that that the Russians were kind of pushing outward, not only into the Black Sea. Um, we were with the U.S. fleet there where they had sent an uh, They'd sent um, an aircraft carrier uh, the furthest north than, than they'd been since the Cold War. Um, the Russians were sort of expanding outward with their sort of intel and their seeking. Um, and uh, what's going on there now? Yes, I would like to. I would like to go back. These are, you know, like a city like Kiev or, or Odessa. 
Um, obviously, a place like Mariupol is not probably a smart place to be right now. But 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 again, because because how people are coping with this, um, it would be fascinating to me to see how they are coping with it. Is it possible to fully prepare anybody to cover a war? I guess you get used to it after a while. Um, when I started and I was young, I was very excited, very excited to be in the middle of the action, you know, as, as you know, there's that feeling. I spoke about adrenaline earlier. You know, here you're there and uh, and the eyes of the world are kind of watching the same place and you're you're there you know that's a that's a that's a great feeling huge rush uh, well yes it is um again the, even that is you know you have to as with everything where it, whether it's that or drinking milk too much of a good thing ends up being a bad thing what advice do you have to give to young journalists who are thinking about following your footsteps? Well, first, I would uh, question anyone who's going to follow in my footsteps. But joking aside, um, my advice would be as simple as this, because because it's it's the only advice I ever gave myself. First off, you have to be curious. You have to be a curious person. And you have to be truly interested, you know, in the geography, in the cultures, in 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 the in the, the food that people eat. Uh, you have to have a genuine interest in that, in order to trust of people who are probably a lot more suspicious of you than you are of them. Um, obviously, you need to keep yourself safe. Obviously, you have to uh, make a decision, hopefully uh, an, an informed decision, with the use of your translators or your security details, should you have one. You probably should, depending on where you go. Uh, we often did. Um, but you have to make an informed decision on whether you should be doing what you're proposing to do, whether or not it's too dangerous. Um, you should have safety training. You should know which end of the car to hide behind when bullets start getting fired, i.e. the engine block, all those kinds of things. Uh, you should know to lie down flat in your stomach when th things start going off because usually, you know, um, the stuff goes upward. Um, and you should always bear in mind that nothing is worth your life. At least that's how I feel about it now. Um, I don't think anything is worth dying for, at least not a story. What was the best part, Kevin? People. I didn't have to think at all uh, to answer that question. It's always been people. And it doesn't, it hasn't really mattered where I've been um, to be welcomed in, you know, to be welcomed in on the side of a, of a, a you know, a, a Croatian highway where a guy is grinding coffee by hand and making you a cup of coffee, uh, smuggling in medicine for an old lady in Iraq that you've met several times on other occasions. Um, you know, a, a tremendous experience in, 
in uh, Soweto in South Africa, uh, where, you know, people, you know, the joy of music and, and the joy of faith is and was celebrated even in the darkest times. Um, but always people. I think that if I had lost my faith in people, I would not have been able to carry on. And we are really grateful that you talked to us, Kevin Tibbles. Thank you very much, Carol. My pleasure. What about objectivity as a war correspondent when your country is at war? How do you keep your own point of view out of your reporting? Jackie Spinner shares her thoughts. Is it possible to be objective as a war correspondent when it's your country that's at war? I think you can try to the extent that, you know, is it possible for us to be objective in any story we cover? Because we always bring our gender, our race, our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status. I'm thinking of Maynard's fault lines and everything we have to cross and everything we bring into a story. Um, But I think you can train yourself. Um, You know, I, I tried very, very hard. Um, you know, not to carry my passport, so to speak, into war, but to carry my press card, um, to bring some accountability, um, you know, to to the military um, and its actions. Um, I mean, it, it was hard, but I did it. In fact, I remember when I came home the first time I went to a, a U.S. Uh, soccer qualifying match in Washington, D.C., and it was the U.S. versus I can't even remember who the U.S. was playing. But as we were going through the the, the gate, um, they just asked me, who are you rooting for? And I froze. <laughs> of course, I was rooting for the U.S., <laughs> but I froze because I had spent so many years, you know, not cheering for anybody, but cheering for the truth, for cheering for accountability that I just I didn't know what what to say. Um, so I think we, it's just how I feel in general about objectivity. I mean, we know it doesn't truly exist, but it doesn't mean we abandon the pursuit of it. And I don't think I ever abandoned the pursuit of it. If you had to advise a young journalist about going to war, what would be your word of advice? Well, I think that, um, I, I, I've talked to my students about that. I have several students who are feeling they wish they were in Ukraine right now. And um, they want to be part of the action. And I worry sometimes when journalists are going to a war zone to make a name for themselves, that they will take unnecessary risks in order to get a front page story or to lead the nightly news. And, you know, and then those stories are gone. And the next day, you know, it's, it's, it's so fleeting. It's so fleeting to, to lead a newspaper or to lead a newscast. And then years pass and nobody remembers the story. And so you really have to be conscious about the story you're trying to get and what you can contribute. Um, you know, I, my students who, I, who want to go to Ukraine but don't speak Ukrainian and don't speak Russian and know nothing about Russian culture and know nothing about the Cold War and World War II and why this is such a huge story right now. I mean, the the, the chance to upend the World War II, post-World War II world order. I mean, you have to know all of that before you go into, um, go into a battlefield. You have to have this cultural and historical knowledge. And so I try to impress on students about that. You, you wouldn't go into a neighborhood in Chicago without context. Understanding, you know, 
the statistics and who lives there and what its history is and you know what, what matters to the people. Um, those same rules that can apply to um, to going to a foreign country as well. Jackie Spinner, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of So You Want to Be a Reporter? I'm Carol Marine. This podcast was produced by Justin Myers, music by Max Duggan. You can listen to this in future episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Thank you so much for tuning in.